0: Hello, I'm Wilson Pruitt, and you're listening to the History of Methodism podcast. You can support us online at patreon.com slash history of Methodism. Today's episode, a not so commonplace book. On Good Friday of 1725, March 26th, John Wesley began to keep notes on his life, his temptations, his resolutions, and other various things. His father and grandfather had kept similar books, often called, at that time, commonplace books. These have been kept by literate folks since ancient times. They are a place to write down quotes from interesting books, personal notations on life, and other things. Marcus Aurelius' classic Meditations is an excellent example of a commonplace book. Thus began the constant companion of John Wesley for the rest of his life, his diary. The format changed, but the practice did not. The story of cracking the code of John Wesley's diary was told in our last episode. Now we are going to look at the fruit of that labor in what his early diary was about. As well It is important to be clear about the difference between John Wesley's journal and John Wesley's diary. The diary was a personal document he kept and saved as much as was feasible. The journal was a published selection of moments from his life, in some places adapted from notes in his diary, in other places not mentioned at all. When John started his first diary, it took him a while to figure out what kind of tool it really was. Surrounding his first entry were quotes from Jeremy Taylor's Rules for Holy Living, which we discussed back in episode 18 on English spirituality. Taylor's work inspired the general rule Wesley gave himself, which is as follows. A general rule in all actions of life. Whenever you are to do an action, consider how God did or would do the like, and do you imitate his example? General rules of employing time. 1. Begin and end every day with God, and sleep not immoderately. 2. Be diligent in your calling. 3. Employ all spare hours in religion as able. 4. All holidays. 5. Avoid drunkards and busybodies. 6. Avoid curiosity and all useless employments and knowledge. 7. Examine yourself every night. 8. Never on any account pass a day without setting aside at least an hour for devotion. 9. Avoid all manner of passion. Following these rules, Wesley wrote his first entry on March 26th, which includes the following. I found a great many unclean thoughts arise in prayer and discovered temptations to them. One, too much addicting myself to a light behavior at all times. Two, listening too much to idle talk or reading vain plays or books. Three, idleness, and lastly, want of devotion, consideration in whose presence I am. From which I perceive it is necessary to, one, labor for a grave and modest carriage, two, avoid vain and light company, three, entertain awful apprehensions of the presence of God, four, avoid idleness, freedom with women, and high-seasoned meats, 5. To resist the very beginnings of lust, not by arguing with, but by thinking no more of it, or by immediately going into company. Lastly, to use frequent and fervent prayer. Finally, after the first entry, Wesley included a few more rules, mostly taken from Taylor. General rules as to intention. 1. In every action, reflect on your end. Two, begin every action in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Three, begin every important work with prayer. Four, do not leave off a duty because you're tempted in it. Within two weeks, the subject matter of his diary entries had shifted from the general to the granularly particular. He started with a dull reporting of reading, writing, and other activities. It was during this time that John wrote in the diary, First saw Veronese, a nickname he had given for Sari Kirkham, an early love interest. Kirkham was soon to be married, but they continued to meet and write in a platonic fashion, even after her wedding. As Wesley came closer to ordination in September of 1725, the diary moved away from daily affairs into a deeper religious sentiment. As Richard Heisenreiter writes, His notebook also began to serve him as a private confessor to bear the record of his self-examination. On August 16th, the first record of his concern for purity of intention, he made his initial diary confession partially hidden behind his cipher, tld slash l underscore k dot e dot, which has been translated as told a lie, curie a or Lord have mercy. A week later, it was a lie indeed, and the day after that, sins in thought. For much of this time, the diary was filled with two entries per day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. I am going to quote from Nehemiah Kernock's version, which leaves some of the code untranslated. If you remember from the last episode, Kernock was the editor a hundred years ago who wrote that some of the code had come to him in a dream. The specific footnote is written in the third person. Quote, he had discovered a place far on in the diary where Poland meant and could only mean twelve. This, as a clue, proved useless until in a dream he saw that two stood for A. This was the first ray of light. Here are some entries from September of 1725 to give you an idea of his style around the time of his ordination. Friday, breakfast with Mr. Sherman. Afternoon, read the gentleman's library, subscribed the articles, read doctor Bennett P I K E sat at the coffee house idle talk Saturday read mister Russell's sermon doctor Bennett P I K E read Bishop Bull's companion P C T F Afternoon Saturday I N D E Colon Boasting Greedy of Praise and Temperate Sleep Detraction Lying K E P I K E P C T F Head in arguing PCTF Morning was ordained deacon by the Bishop of Oxford Afternoon Walked in Trinity Gardens, collected doctor Bennett, heard mister Bear on the Holy Ghost teaching the apostles all truth, collected Bennett. PCTF Saturday at Burtman's. read Bishop Burnett. By December, his list of sins had grown. Quote Breach of Vows, Careless in fixing days of mortifying, etc., pride of my parts and holiness, greedy of praise, peevishness, idleness, intemperance, and sleep, sins in thought, causeless and sinful anger, breach of promise, dissimulation, lying, rash censoring, condemning others, disrespect of governors, desire to seem better than I am. In this period, after he had been ordained a deacon and started his teaching at Oxford, he began to keep more resolutions as a response to his sins. For instance, on January 29, 1726, Wesley wrote, I have loved women and company more than God. Resolve never to let sleep or company hinder from going to prayers. I have taken God's name in vain. Resolve never to mention it, but in religion, in devotion, prayer, and humility. These resolutions continued to fill space in his diary as did his daily and weekly schedule of activities. His own resolutions concerning intemperate sleep, as Heisenreiter notes, soon resulted in an earnest resolve to rise early. John Wesley's daily routine was soon noted, and he followed it for much of the next two years. Quote, Rise at seven, Breakfast at eight, Prayers at nine, Dinner at twelve, Private prayers at five, family prayers at 6, supper at 7, to bed at 10. This also soon turned into a weekly schedule of Sundays for studying theology, Saturday for sermon writing and letters. Mondays and Tuesdays were for classics, Wednesday for logic, one of the courses he taught at Oxford, Thursday for languages, and Friday for philosophy and physics. John Wesley also kept sermon notes in his diary. Here is an example. Heard Mr. Collie, think of God with reverence and modesty, avoid a sanctified forwardness. Let your thoughts of him be mixed, compounded of all his attributes, and not unfruitful. But imitate him in truth, love, and holiness, and consider him under the characters he assumes himself, as a good shepherd, a friend, etc. During this time, Wesley was teaching logic and philosophy at Lincoln College, Oxford. He also wrote around 20 sermons and preached over 30 times, and attended over 50 worship services. Every month, he would give himself a monthly review. At this young age, John focused mostly on his studies and the works that he had read. Kernock notes a number of examples. Quote, in these, Latin and Greek classics or Hebrew take precedence. French or English literature follows. Theology, church history, and works of devotion are included under the head of religion. And so in the six months following ordination, John Wesley read Drake and Leclerc's Physics, Burnett on the Reformation, Dennis against the Pope, Salmon's Review, Wellstead's Poems, Lee against Locke, Hicks on Schism, The Great Atlas, Dr. Haley on Magnetism and Gravity, Ditton, On Matters Thinking, The Souls of Brutes, Watts, Kells Principia, Cowley, Locke, Norris, Shane on Fevers, Ezra in Hebrew, Horace's Odes, Horace's Epodes and Satires, The Life of Whiteways, Horace de Arte Poetica and Epistles, St. Matthew, part of the 15th chapter of Proverbs, which he translated into Latin verse. Virgil's Eclogues, Logic, Virgil's Georgics, St. Mark, St. Luke, the Aeneid, Life of Plutarch, Epictetus, the Axe, the Iliad, Romans, Xenophon, Colossians, and Thessalonians, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, Cornelius Nepos, Jackson Cowley, and Watt, On the Case of Subscribing, Prior and Berkeley, Satires of Juvenal, Verteau's Revolutions of Rome, Singe on Toleration, Clarendon, Milton, Rapin on Eloquence, Ephesians, and Twelve Odes of Anacreon. There were also plays he read and attended, as well as his letters. Each letter he received or wrote was endorsed, dated, and in many instances entered into the diary. What we are missing from the historical record are the letters Wesley wrote and received from Sarah Kirkham, or Veronese. Kernock goes so far as to say that the discovery of these letters would give us a spiritual autobiography of John Wesley. John and Sarah corresponded for a decade, and Wesley visited the home of Sarah and her husband, John Chapone, many times. Wesley wrote Sarah's words down in his diary about how they could maintain friendship in the midst of her marriage to another man. I would certainly tell you if my husband should ever resent our freedom, which I am satisfied he never will. Such an accident as this would make it necessary to retain in some measure the appearance of the esteem I have to you, With the esteem as it is grounded on reason and virtue and entirely agreeable to us both, no circumstance of life will ever make me alter. Sarah Chapone is famous in her own right as the author of The Hardships of the English Laws in Relation to Wives, published in 1735, a polemical pamphlet arguing that the rights of women in England were akin to slavery. Alas, the Veronese letters were lost in the aspect of his character and thought which he shared with Sarah Chapone has been lost as well. We have a few of her letters to John Wesley, where she writes in a glowing manner, quote, I think myself extremely obliged to you for the favor of the sermon and those letters that alone were worthy of the correspondence they maintained. And our understanding of Wesley due to the loss of John's letters to Sarah is great. Charles came to Oxford in 1726. In 1727, after earning his Master's of Arts, John moved back to Epworth to be his father's curate and to help with his father's great book, Dissertationes in Librum Joubi, which we discussed in episode 26. John's only trip back to Oxford for two years was in September of 1728 for his own ordination into the priesthood. The diary of this time is lost, but there is a distinct change in character taking place. Samuel Jr. noticed the change of Charles in the summer of 1728 when he told John, quote, his every motion and look made me almost suspect it was you. That is because Samuel Jr. had noticed the solemnity and gravity of Charles. That winter, a new sort of correspondence sprung up between John and Charles that will lead us directly to the Holy Club in the winter of 1729, and Methodism's formal entry into the world, next time on the History of Methodism.